Please open your Bibles to the book of Luke in the New Testament, the book of Luke chapter 16, and we'll begin reading at verse 19. Luke 16, verse 19. This is the familiar parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Before we read, let us pray. Our Father, with these sacred pages open before us, pages that record what the Holy Spirit breathed out long ago and preserved and kept for the church through all the ages, we pray that we may understand, that we may be thoughtful as we read this, these words, that they may sink deep into our souls and hearts, and even deeper as that word is proclaimed. So work in us by your spirit, we ask, as the word is read and taught to us this evening. For Jesus' sake, amen. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Note that first last verse again. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. I wonder if you've ever considered whether it would be a big help in the evangelistic task of the church if someone would do some spectacular act in front of a whole crowd of atheists 
like maybe letting the planets all line up and somehow spell the word creator just to prove that God made the world. Or maybe if somebody would drop dead at the very moment when some of those increasingly profane newscasters and politicians utter a common curse word, just like that. They would drop dead. Wouldn't people notice there is a God? Or what if President Lincoln would suddenly show up to revive a strong moral foundation in the country? I suppose we don't want really too many of those events, but doesn't it seem like it would help? Maybe a resurrection or two, like Hitler rising from the dead and telling us what hell is like. Or if Paul could come back from heaven and tell us what he wasn't allowed to tell in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 about the wonders of heaven. Or what if overnight the World Trade Center would pop up again in New York just as quickly as it fell? Wouldn't this make a change for the good in the country and maybe even in our own hearts? If this is ever what you think, or if you think you personally would be vastly more serious and more urgent in prayer if somebody came back from the dead, then you need, and I certainly need, to hear Jesus' parable of the rich man, Dives, and Lazarus. For in this parable, Jesus tells us first about the conditions in this life, and then about reversals hereafter, and finally about an urgency for living. So there are three areas of concern this evening. Conditions in this life, reversals hereafter, and the urgency for living. The conditions in this life for the rich man, Dives, which is the literal translation of the word rich, were quite good. He lived in opulence and splendor with no thought of anyone but himself. He wears purple outer garments and expensive linen undergarments. He feasts daily on the finest of foods. Today, he might have had a casino or two. He would have been a show-off, maybe a strutting peacock, as we would say. And he pays no attention to the beggar Lazarus, who has been placed at his door. Dives was the kind that looked at the beggar and decided that his contributions would go to some other worthy cause, perhaps where there was more recognition. For who would notice if he helped Lazarus? Besides, you never know what you can get into. These types have some bad diseases, perhaps. Or you could get into a dependency situation with them, and we certainly don't want that. Now, I know I'm making a little of that up, but you get the picture of what kind of a man this rich man was. What were the conditions in this life for Lazarus? Lazarus was a mere beggar. And besides that, he was sick. It says he was full of sores. We think about the sores that Job had in Job 2, verse 7. Lazarus had sores. He has an appropriate name, Lazarus, which literally means God has helped. It's a translation of Eleazaros. In all his distress, he places his hope and his trust in God, for God has helped him. It doesn't look like it in this life for Lazarus, but he does have that name, Lazarus, God has helped. And by lying at the gate 
of the rich man that we'll call Dives. He has plenty of an opportunity. He gives plenty of an opportunity for the rich man to show pity. For he is eager to be fed simply with scraps from the rich man's table. And his only friends are the dogs who lick his sores. And the dogs are unclean, pesky pariahs that in that day were considered as filthy as pigs. If you wanted pigs licking your sores, I don't know if any of you do. Maybe you love your pigs. I know uh, some of us have them. But that's the way it was with Lazarus. The, the dogs licked his sores. The end of misery for Lazarus finally came, almost mercifully. When he died, he died. At least he was out of his suffering and pain from the sores. The passage doesn't mention whether he was buried. He wasn't important enough, probably, to get into the Jerusalem globe. And the angels carry him into heaven, it says. Swing low, sweet chariot. Luke 6, verse 20. Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God that's fulfilled for poor Lazarus. Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But the end of the rich man in this life is quite different. The interesting reality is that even though he was very rich, he couldn't stop death from knocking at his door. Maybe he had all the comforts of life that one could want in dying. Good care, a family to hover around him, someone to soothe his fever with damp cloths, perhaps whatever medicine would have been available in those days. Today, probably just the right dose of morphine to alleviate his pain. But for him, death couldn't be stopped either. The beggar died, but so also the rich man. But he was buried, it says. Now, it doesn't go into details. It just says in verse 22, he was buried. In our day, that kind of man would have had a big funeral, an expensive casket, no doubt with an inner spring mattress, the best in a waterproof vault into which the casket could be lowered or placed in a mausoleum, never to be seen again. No matter the cost, it didn't matter because there was plenty where that money came from. The mayor could have given a nice eulogy along with a few other tributes. But here is the important contrast. Of course, I'm putting it in terms of what might have happened today. Nothing is said of the beggar's burial. While the rich man's burial gets noted. On the other hand, nothing is said of the rich man's soul. While the beggar's soul is carried off by the angels into heaven. And that brings us to the second point this evening. We've looked at the conditions in this life. What about the reversals? Hereafter, well, Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham. The angels who are ministering spirits sent to help the children of God, according to Hebrews 1.14, they have carried his soul to a place where he is warmly received. Abraham's bosom is a symbol of a special favor at a banquet. Was Lazarus denied good eating before? 
Was he longing even for crumbs from the table of the rich man? Well, now he's in the best place of all. The bosom of Abraham is the best place in the heavenly banquet. As John reclined in Jesus' bosom at the Last Supper, so this man is now with the father of all believers, Abraham, the great patriarch himself. Truly, God has helped Lazarus. His name fits. He's the one God helped, Eliazarus. And while he endured such misery at first, in the end he is given the tender mercies of the God in whom he trusted. He has depended on the mercy of God before, and now all this has come to him by grace. He is forever blessed. Now this doesn't mean that all poor people go to heaven. They still need to trust in the Lord, repent of their sins, and serve Christ alone. And yet we do know that often the physically poor are also among the poor in spirit. They can afford it. They have nothing else. So that could be a blessing if they're reminded to be rich in God while they're poor in this life. What about the rich man? He's in hell, according to verse 23. And the word used here is Hades. And this isn't simply the place of the dead, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. There is the word Sheol in the Old Testament, which may, has different uses. Sometimes it simply refers to the grave. And you go to the grave whether you're righteous or not. But the Gospels make it very clear that not all the dead are in the same place. Hades is hell. Another word for hell is the word Gehenna. It's the place of torments and flame. It stands in the sharpest contrast with heaven or with the bosom of Abraham. It is the place of thorough ruin and unending conscious suffering. We know that from other places in the New Testament. Unending conscious suffering. And even though the terms used here in our record here in Luke are very literal and earthly terms such as lifting up the eyes, seeing people far off, a finger, the tongue, water, dip your finger in the water, come and cool my tongue. You, you can't literally take, you can't take everything here literally because it is a parable. And yet, this is very essential to our understanding of this. There are clear, definite truths taught in what Jesus is saying in Luke 16. And they are, at least this, that the dead are not asleep, but awake. They are also that some are saved and others are suffering unending and unspeakable anguish. In fact, even some of the symbolism may not be only symbol. The text speaks of flames that are unquenchable. And flames probably can point to something worse. But how do we know that there are not literally flames in Hades? What worse burning can we imagine? So while we don't understand everything and know for sure how much of this is literal and how much not, we know certain things definitely are. The worst thing of all is that in hell, the rich man has not repented. 
Oh, he's praying, all right. But he still thinks of Lazarus as his errand boy or servant. And even though he never gave any favors to Lazarus while he was on earth, he and even never imitated Abraham's faith, now he expects favors from Lazarus and he desires some things to be changed. He never imitated the faith of Abraham on earth or looked for the city with foundations. But now that he's burning in hell, he calls Abraham father, father Abraham. Well, now it seems like he woke up a little. But James pronounces the sentence on the rich that don't repent. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. James 5, verses 5 and 6. Dives, the rich man, was heartless, lacked generosity, and failed to care for the poor. And a great gulf is fixed between heaven and hell. In other words, the location after death is final. It isn't going to change ever. Despite Divey's prayer from hell, nothing can change for him. Because when he cries out to Father Abraham, Abraham says that now things have been reversed. Verse 25, he, Lazarus, is comforted here and you are in anguish. His self-centered prayer requests just a moment's relief with a cool dip of water from Lazarus, just a drop, which Abraham in the parable answers in a friendly manner, but prayers from hell are too late. So we are all warned. Don't wait to really start praying till then. Hebrews 9 verse 27 tells us, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. You better start praying now if you haven't been really praying thus far. In fact, Lazarus cannot be an errand boy any longer. It would be improper. What the rich man assumes about Lazarus is not proper at all and can't happen. What the rich man had before he died was all he got, and he doesn't have that anymore. And now things are reversed, and it just wouldn't be good or just to send Lazarus to hell to cool the rich man's tongue, not even with one drop of water on the tip of his finger. Because he says crossing the gulf between heaven and hell is impossible. A person's lot after death is irreversible. Now there were vast chasms that were common sites in Palestine with its deep ravines and gorges and you can go various places where there are deep ravines and gorges and how do you get from one side to the other? I'm thinking about the Royal Gorge in Colorado. There's a bridge there that's 1,260 feet long and it rises 1,000 feet above the Arkansas River. So there's a bridge from one side to the other of that chasm. This chasm 
between heaven and hell has no bridge. It's impossible to cross, says Abraham. And the meaning is you cannot change places after death. And there are only two places. Once you're in one of them, heaven or hell, you can't cross over. It's final. Which brings us to think about urgency for the living. You and I have the Bible right now. You gave gifts so the Bible would be passed out to others in the Bible League. The rich man finally reveals one small ounce of sympathy or pity. All of a sudden, he's concerned for his brothers. He doesn't want them to end up where he is. So he suddenly gets interested in evangelism. Amazing. In hell, he's interested in evangelism. They know that they know Lazarus, likely his brothers do. Likely they have treated him as their brother did. So Dives makes one more attempt to turn Lazarus into an errand boy. If he can't come across this huge chasm from heaven to hell, then send him back from the dead to preach to my brothers, the rich man says. And then they will be warned to stay out of hell. If he would just come back from the dead and preach to them, then maybe they would be saved. And he implies, therefore, maybe if I would have been warned, I wouldn't be here today. But I wasn't warned. And so the rich man, again, puts the blame on somebody else. In fact, he claims that Scripture is not sufficient. He doesn't know the Belgic Confession, does he? He doesn't know what we have been privileged to inherit that teaches the sufficiency of Scripture. So Abraham's answer to the rich man when he asks if Lazarus could just be sent back to earth to preach to his brothers, Abraham's answer is very significant. Essentially, it's this. They've got the Bible. Verse 29. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And that's a significant point. Moses and the prophets clearly set forth the kind of life that pleases God, a life of covenant obedience and trust. And it prophesies the coming of a Savior who will enable them to walk in that obedience and trust. God's children do trust Him. They deny themselves. They show kindness to widows and orphans and to the needy as humble servants of Christ. The Old Testament patterns the call for human kindness after the wonderful grace of God and His covenant love. And the Old Testament is full of portrayals of the wonderful grace of God and His covenant love. This is the Bible that the Jews of Jesus' day had. Jesus had just before this spoken the words of Luke 16, verses 16 and 17. I didn't read them earlier, so I'm going to read them now. Jesus says, the law and the prophets were until John, that's John the Baptist. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. 
So Jesus, in this parable, is supporting what he has said earlier. And as we hear it from Abraham, it supports this very thing. They had the law. They had Moses and the prophets. Jesus has not canceled the law and the prophets. In fact, all of them point to Jesus, it says in John 5, verse 39. They're all about him. And those who believe Moses also believe in Jesus, John 5, verse 46. And this is stressed to the Jews later in that same chapter, verses 46 and 47. So Abraham's answer is, they've got the Bible. You don't need Lazarus. You've got the Bible. And you cannot expect anything beyond that message to bring conversions. Now, this rich man still isn't satisfied. He's sure that if someone were to rise and go back from the dead, it would change his brothers. That's what he says in verse 30. No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. The rich man thinks that some dramatic stunt from God would actually make the difference. But of course, we need to ask ourselves, would that really, anything like that, really be effective? Would a resurrection actually shock atheists and reckless livers into repentance and faith? If you went along with, Lazar with uh, the rich man's thinking, it amounts to charging that what we have been given by God is not enough. That the prophets and Moses and what we have is even more. The Gospels and the Epistles, the book of Revelation. What we have is not enough. That would be the charge. If somebody would just come back from the dead, my brothers would then believe, he says. But someone has been raised from the dead. You can read about it in John 11. Lazarus of Bethany was raised when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, and he came out of the grave. And they still didn't believe. Jesus, the Son of God, was raised from the dead on the third day. The greatest miracle of all was accomplished. We've got that. What more does God have to do? And he even did other resurrections as previews in a way. The widow's son was raised when Jesus put his hand on him, the widow of Nain. Jairus' daughter, 12 years old, was raised from the dead. Eutychus, later on, who fell out of a window because Paul preached so long and fell asleep, he was raised from the dead. And when Jesus died, groups of tombs were opened and those who had died in the Lord came out of their graves. The Old Testament saints came out of their graves and when Jesus was, was risen, they walked into the city of Jerusalem and preached. Someone has come back from the dead. What more does God have to do? Isn't the Bible and isn't the record of his actions sufficient for us? Think of how important this is for us today and in the church as well as the world. The contemporary church always seems to want a little more than the word. Maybe an emotional high, a dramatic healing, a feeling, an amazing and stunning answer to prayer maybe even convincing scientific proof. But we've had the Bible already for thousands of years, and we have not only the Old, but we're enriched with the New Testament, and the Old and the New are together. The Old is in the New fulfilled. The 
new as in the old predicted. So, brothers and sisters, your response and my response to God's word now will make a difference in eternity. This drives the point home. What you and I have is enough. And you'd better respond to what God has given you now. Don't expect more than he's given you already. For God right now is calling you and me to repent and trust Jesus. To accept the gospel promise of forgiveness and grace. To listen to the word written, read, and proclaimed. Besides all this, the issues of life and death are being decided in this life. You may be very well off now, comfortable, enjoying the good life. But what about eternity? What about the day you die? Even if you have a splendid funeral, what is that? To being left out of Abraham's bosom. Wouldn't you rather be poor, sick, sore Lazarus than rich Dives in hell? Would you exchange the bosom of Abraham for the flame and the anguish of hell where even a few drops of water would seem a relief but would last only a second of that? We can say from our passage that hell is a place where not even the smallest pleasures can be given, not even one drop of water on the tip of one's finger to cool the tongue. Those who think life on earth is hell don't know what they're talking about, do they? And believers find comfort in this. They suffer now, but it's not hell. It isn't. And yet people throw that word around like it doesn't matter. If they knew what it was, would they ever dare say it? Except in church. The contemporary church wants more than the Bible. Some think saving faith actually comes in spectacular events or new revelation. Others ignore scripture claiming the Bible is not sufficient. This is what they say. We need to hear what science says before we decide right and wrong or true and false. But we know as children of Jesus that you cannot understand science without the lens of scripture. We rely and can rely only on the written word of God, the Bible. You have Moses and the prophets and the gospel. And this is the conviction needed by the church of our Lord Jesus Christ today. That the preaching of the gospel from the Old and the New Testaments, the word of God is the only effective tool we have. And yet what a tool. For the New Testament teaches it is the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1.17. And it is a demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men but on the power of God, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 4 and 5. And God has made his gospel message plain and his call to repentance and faith in Jesus is made very plain in the Bible so you can believe in Jesus. Only his grace and open the eyes of the blind. And yet he uses our feeble efforts as preachers and witnesses to the gospel 
to open blind eyes, when Jesus is proclaimed, or when you tell your neighbors and family members about Jesus. In fact, the Holy Spirit has opened our eyes this very day to see the beauty of Jesus who has died for us and will be and has been raised for our justification and will come again. And we've confessed that in our creed. So dear worshiper, this very hour in God's house is the time that God has given you to pay attention to the warning that Jesus gives in our passage. Your life and your doctrine at present make all the difference for the future. What attention you give to Jesus' inspired, infallibly recorded, and preserved word makes all the difference. Whether you have believed the gospel promise and turned from your empty way of life to the mighty Savior is crucial this very hour. Whether you will be in heaven or hell is determined in this life. And once you die, there is no transfer of membership from one place to the other. There is the gulf fixed. There is no Royal Gorge Bridge between. So look this very moment to Jesus and see his wonderful beauty and his all-sufficiency to save and to give you life everlasting and give thanks that he's given you this book that tells you everything you need to know about it. Let us pray. Father, thank you for telling us about the rich man and Lazarus, for warning us that we better take this seriously now while we still can. We thank you for your electing love, a love that has been manifest since the foundation of the world, we thank you that in your love you have given us this message tonight from Scripture. A message calling us not to take it easy, but to turn to you. And so we pray that if any one of us here tonight has not yet responded to the fullness of your grace, that we may get down on our knees, see our sins for what they are, run from them to Jesus to find that he is everything he has promised, that he is an all-sufficient Savior who has given us an all-sufficient word. May we all one day be in the bosom of Abraham. Lord, may we be Lazaruses. Lord, help us. You have helped us. Give us your grace in Jesus.